0: Remain standing as we turn to read the gospel lesson, which is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. And I will be reading verses 15 through 17 and then verses 21 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire." When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Most of you, I'm sure, have heard the nursery rhyme about the old woman who lived in a shoe. It, it has just four lines, and in case you have forgotten them. There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. She gave them some broth without any bread, then whipped them all soundly and put them to bed. Now for some, something completely different. Our text for today is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 15 through 17 and 21 through 22. The immediate context of this narrative of the ministry is uh, is of John the Baptist and his ministry. John the prophet left quite an impression on his hearers. The whole land, it seems became stirred uh, when he appeared, uh, was stirred up. It was alive. It was something new was happening, and and they were excited. He preached, though, a very specific and, and, uh, if you will, severe message. He preached a message of a baptism of repentance. John told those coming forth, to be baptized, exactly what steps, specific steps that they should take to demonstrate their repentance. For tax collectors, for example, uh, they were to collect no more taxes than actually required. No graft, uh, no exorbitant taxes above what the government was charging Soldiers and government officials were told that they could demonstrate repentance if they refused to extort money from the people and not to engage in false accusations and promises. Wow, do we need a prophet among us today such as John the Baptist to warn Washington to repent of its extortion and lies And let me be careful here, and I'm going to read exactly what I wrote down. I usually don't pay any attention to my notes. For stealing the freedom and wealth of the people in the name of a utopian fairness. Repent for saddling the unborn with a quarter million dollar debt per child at birth. Yes, that's right. Every child born in the future comes into America owing $250,000. Now, as many of you know by experience, I do, debt equals slavery and mandates equals slavery. These policies, supported only by empty promises and propaganda, have an enormous impact upon the Christian community. And that's the only reason I'm mentioning this in one sense, because of its impact upon our ministry and the future freedom we have to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and to carry out the Great Commission. Uh, The Western world has been the engine of evangelism for centuries and its future looks rather dim. Pray that the Lord will send us 250,000 John the Baptist to call us all to repentance of these sins and for aiding and abetting those who are engaging in the practice. Now, back to the text. The text, the people of the land were so taken with John the Baptist, they began to wonder if he wasn't the Christ, the promised Messiah. Now, think of that, what they, were, what they had in their minds. They were so taken with him. They knew that when the Messiah come, he would come with Judgment to execute righteousness, and to set up the eternal kingdom. Was John the Baptist a person? His language sounded like it. He was a prophet. Surely he was a prophet. He dressed like one, and he was a prophet of the Lord who spoke the truth to power. John's answer, though, was quick and sure, and I want to read it in verses 15 and 17 again. He denied that he was the Messiah, But listen to his answer. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John possibly was the Christ or could he be the Christ? Listen to his answer. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John said, yes, the Messiah is coming. I am not the Messiah, but he is coming, and he is coming with righteousness, and he is coming with judgment his answer to their expectation or questions about him was clear and very simple. I am not the Christ. I baptize you, he said, with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The people in Jesus' day had the same expectation about the Messiah that the Old Testament people had. They had the expectation that at the end God would come and he would set up his righteous kingdom through his his Messiah, his anointed one. He would sit on the throne of David and he will reign in righteousness and in judgment. They only knew one coming. They did not know of a first and a second coming. They only knew of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it is an interesting thing that in Advent we focus more on the second coming than the first coming. And the reason is, is because the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints really only understood that God would set up His kingdom in the Messiah. They didn't have it neatly divided between first and second coming. That only became the teaching, if you will, the clear teaching of the Bible. It was already there in seed form but it became the clear teaching of the Scripture uh, in the epistles, demonstrating that Christ not only was coming at the end of history, but he had come in the middle of history. God became incarnate in his Son. This was the expectation that they had, that God would come with judgment. Now, John reassures them that, yes, at the end, there is judgment, for God must reign in righteousness. Now, we know uh, that Jesus uh, is the Messiah, and we know of the second coming uh, because of the first coming in a real sense. We knew that the second coming in the Old Testament and the New was to come for judgment. But now it dawned on them that Christ had come in the midst of history. And the Messiah had come not so much in judgment, but to receive judgment upon himself. Word on the second coming, I, I, I got a, an email from um, a friend uh, not long ago. I think Dan Elmendorf got it as well. We, we got an email and, um, concerning the second coming of Christ. And this email essentially said that uh, in our area in Kingston, uh, there is a, a great deal of messianic fervor over the second coming of Jesus. In fact, it's a fever pitch almost. I talked to the person. Uh, Messiahism, if you will, is a fever that people catch from time to time. Now, I want to speak just briefly on the second coming of Christ, and then I want to focus on the rest of the text. The email talked about people were getting excited, just like people were getting excited in John's day over the prospects of the Messiah. And this leads to a lot of the speculations. And the questioner asked me if, if uh, we could not deal with this on Redeemer Broadcasting uh, on the plain answer to address this matter of the second coming of Christ. And they were concerned that there was an unbalanced approach. Well, on such matters, one must be very conservative, in my opinion, about speculating about the second coming of Christ that's why you don't hear me preach much on the details except that Christ is coming. Remember the scriptural admonition not to speculate, or at least I do, above that which is written. And so that means that I have to be sure of my interpretation, otherwise I enter into a period of, of or a time or a, a, an area of speculation. A sound interpretation of Scripture, I believe, will show that we... We, we can know much less about the details of Jesus coming his second time than we know and could be convinced of his coming again. Now, that is an important matter to, to, to make. Uh, all through history, if you read church history, you will find from time to time and again, over and over, at certain times in history, there is a great fever Uh, about the second coming of Christ, and there are those who are sure that this is the time when Christ is coming. And they can point out specific signs and everything else. And, And there are signs. The Bible talks about them. The point is, we can be certain that Jesus is coming again, or sure that Jesus is coming again because he was raised from the dead and said he would. We can be sure that Jesus is coming again, for that is the teaching of the Scripture over and over, that this same Christ who goes away will come again. But we can be less sure exactly when that will be, and it ought to temper, if you will, our speculations. Now, you say, why is it so wrong to speculate? Because it leads people astray. It destroys people's hopes and opinions about Christianity when speculations don't come true. You know, we ought to be content with the knowledge that we have. That's godliness. And not to pry into those things and to remember that what God has withheld from us, he has withheld for a reason. Now, with that said, what we do know is that in the first coming, the triune God came and he dwells in our midst. And I want to look at the rest of the verses in the text. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying, and as as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, and with whom I am well pleased. What we do know for sure is that the baptism of Jesus at his first coming, is a very important event in his own life and in the life of the history of salvation. You say, what do you mean by that? I want you to notice that all the Gospels, uh, the three synoptic Gospels, talk about the baptism of Jesus in a very specific way. It must have meant something to those in the first century. It must have meant something much more than I, I think we suspect. While we've got our eye on the details of the second coming, we probably should focus more on actually what has been fulfilled in history at the first coming. What actually happened when Jesus was baptized? Why was he baptized? Did he need to be baptized because he needed repentance when he submitted to John's baptism? He doesn't say that, does he? John was even reluctant to baptize him. He had his suspicions about Jesus, that he was more than just simply a teacher. And he is reluctant. And he's reluctant for a reason. But Jesus says, No, you baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. Now, here is a good theological deduction from this. It means that that one who became incarnate the second person of the Trinity, as the man Jesus, is now publicly, fully, and freely identifying himself with us. Moreover, he's identifying himself with us in our sins. This becomes very important at the time of his crucifixion. For what he did on the cross was pay the price for our sins. He's the sin-bearer. And when he says it, no, suffer it to be so for now to fulfill all righteousness, here is God identifying with sinful human beings in their flesh and in their history. What a wonderful, amazing truth that is. It is absolutely astounding. It means that God dwells with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Moreover, I want you to know that this is the triune God. In Christ, the scripture says, dwelt in him all the fullness of deity bodily. And here we have a manifestation of the triune God. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father is present through the voice from heaven. The Spirit is present through the descending dove. And here is the Son of God himself in the flesh. And he is called the Son of God. What Christmas means above everything else is that God has come to dwell with us. Think of that. I, I was uh, reading uh, a report. I, I have a, a screen that I go to that talks about what happened in the media the, the former day, the following day I read it. I don't always watch these programs, but I read it somewhere. And there's a little video clip And I saw a video clip of Ben Stein. Uh, Ben Stein is very sympathetic to Christianity, very much so. And um, he was being interviewed, and and the interviewer asked him, "Why, why is there such a rabid, hateful attempt to attack Christianity and Christmas at this time of the year? He said, well, those people are simply angry and discontented. Now think about that. Why do you want to attack someone else's holy day? Why do you want to drag someone else down? Well, there are psychological reasons that people do that. Why do you sometimes you receive what you consider to be entirely unfair criticism? Because someone has a need to attack you, maybe to make themselves feel better about themselves and their view is of life. Maybe they are angry. Maybe they are discontent. And that seems to me to be true. The secular world is a very angry and discontented world. It is not contented. And it is angry. Secularism itself, I want you to think just for a moment what it is. It's not really a philosophy. It's a process. It just goes on and on and on trying to accumulate more rights for an end that they know not what. There's no goal. It's just change. Add another right here, another right there, and all of these rights become enslaving. The true freedom is the freedom of the Christian who knows the end and who knows Christ, who is the end. That's the wonderful thing about God coming to dwell with us. There is a certain reality that has invaded our hearts and our life and our world that the Christian understands through faith. You know what I counted amazing is about reality. I think a lot about what is real, don't you? What is real? Take 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 anything, any object here in this building. This this wonderful, simple, but I think beautiful sanctuary. Take the piano. You look at it and you see hard stuff. And for centuries upon centuries, millennia upon millennia, we, we took it to be very solid and hard, something like that. But then we had the tools to be able to go deeper, and we realized it's made up of very small particles. We, we keep dividing these particles, and we, we named them atom, which you can't divide no, uh, what you cannot divide further. But we discovered we could divide further when we got better tools, and we realized that they're subatomic particles. And these subatomic particles, some of them have apparently no, no, no matter, no weight. They, they, they're almost spooky. They can appear at two places at one time. And uh, they're part of our world, but it seems to be sliding more and more into some kind of spiritual reality, doesn't it? But Christians believe that that's, that's really true that at the deepest level of reality it is not material but spiritual and at the deepest level of the spiritual world is the eternal spirit even God himself and look what we are saying this eternal spirit became flesh in our world and took up a body to dwell with us forever isn't that an amazing amazing truth and this is what gives us comfort that God dwells with us. Wherever you go, whatever you do, as a Christian, God is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He does not take the pain and hurt of life away from you. He does not take away the struggle. But that one who is with us entered into our struggle and our pain and finally at the depths of our sin and took our judgment for Him. Well... Back to another subject. There is a Christian version of the old woman who lived in a shoe. And it's this There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children and loved them all too. She said, Thank you, Lord Jesus, for sending them bread, then kissed them all gladly and sent them to bed. Now, between the 1797 version that I read at the beginning and this version, I think, which came about 100 years later, somebody has captured what it means for God to be with us. The harshness of life has been ameliorated. She's kissing her children, thanking God for bread as she sent them to bed. It almost sounds like the other one was a beatdown, which was done in Victorian England and a few other places. Notice what it means for God to be with us as a Christian. Even the old woman who lives in the shoe and does not have much has a different view on life. Whatever It is for God to come at the end of history in Christ and to judge the worlds. We'll find out. But right now, you know he has already come. And he is with you. And there's a different way to look at life. And if Christmas is being attacked, is it because there are a growing number of people who do not share that view? My friends... We need to evangelize and do the work in our generation. Joy to the world. The Lord has already come. Praise be to God. Amen.